Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast, a podcast where we talk about show business, old friends, and new adventures. Today, we have a very special guest. I'll be here with James Valk, an American composer for the musical theater, lyricist, and librettist. He wrote the musical The Spitfire Grill in 2001 and produced it. James Falk grew up in Wisconsin and has a BFA from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He sang for the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra. Off-Broadway, he wrote the book Music and Lyrics and co-directed the production Zombies from the Beyond, which opened in 1995. And in 2001, he co-produced The Spitfire Grill where he composed the score and collaborated on the book with lyricist Fred Alley. The musical won the Richard Rogers Production Award, presented by the American Academy of Arts and Letters. The Spitfire Grill also received Best Musical nominations from Outer Critics Circle and Drama League, and had two Drama Desk nominations. You can find the cast album. It was released on Triangle Road Records. Well, welcome to the Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast, James. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Michelle. I'm really honored that you're here. I'm thrilled to be here. It's been a long time. I met you. You were sitting at the piano bench on Broadway, and you were really nice to me. There's a running theme on this podcast. I have people on as guests, who people in show business who were nice to me. So you were super kind, Hooray. and I appreciated it. I passed the Michelle test. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of people in show business with different personalities, and the majority of people are super giving and kind. And you were just so sweet. I came in as a temporary replacement. I was on the Roxy tour, and they called me to go to Broadway. And I came in, and I didn't really know many people at all. And you were just so sweet putting me into the show. And you just were always such a positive energy on stage. And I really appreciated that. Oh, thank you. That means so much to me to hear that, really. Thank you. How long were you doing Chicago? Almost a decade. Wow. Uh, if you count encores. I started with the show at Encores. And I stayed with it for quite some time. Most of that time on Broadway. And then after the movie came out, they put out another tour. I've, we were called the Cell Block Tour. You had the... Um, you know, the Roxy and the Velma tours that went out pretty fast after the revival opened. And I don't know when the Amos tour, the cellophane tour, that was later, I think, but this uh, cell block tour went out uh, on the, on the heels of the movie version. Oh, it was great fun. It was great. And it was a nice uh, sit down tour. We were a month in San Francisco, a month in LA, month in Montreal, month in Chicago, the city. And for someone who hates to fly, the less moving around, the better. <laughs> yeah, I have an aversion to flying too. I don't, I don't hate it, but because I was touring for so many years, the airport, it literally is my least favorite place to be. Yeah, I can imagine. What made you go to Wisconsin after living in New York? What was the deciding factor for you to go to Sturgeon Bay and run this theater? Well, I'll tell you, I'm from Wisconsin originally. Uh, I moved to New York in 1989. I waited until I got accepted to the musical theater writing program at NYU. 
I knew that I wanted to move to New York, but I wanted, didn't want to move there without a plan. I wanted to, um, you know, have at least a couple of years where my time would be regulated. I'd be meeting the right people and, uh, you know, spending my time wisely and not going to wait tables. And I lived in New York for 22 years. Uh, the last three years of that, I had been coming back to Wisconsin and doing Shakespeare, of all things. Uh, we have a Shakespeare company here in, I live in Door County, Wisconsin now. Uh, Wisconsin is shaped like a hand and the thumb sticks is a peninsula that sticks out into Lake Michigan. It's 250 miles of shoreline. It's gorgeous. There's a lot of condos and tourism, but not tacky tourism. It's pretty uh, sedate tourism. And there are four, three, there were three professional theaters here at the time, three equity theaters. So I was at one of them, uh, Dor Shakespeare, acting in Shakespeare and writing some music for them as well. And it's, it's just a wonderful place to be. I'd had a bit of history in this part of the state, although I'm not from here. I'm from Milwaukee, the big city. And the third summer, My husband, Bob, and I have always had a pipe dream about running a theater, always. And not everybody in theater has that gene or that inkling to want to do that. But now you mentioned to me that you that you might have that gene. And I uh, do. Yeah. See, some people just kind of want to do it. And it's a calling lately. It's pulling me. It is a calling. It is. And I think part of what it's about is being in control, not of other people or of the organization, but being in control of your life. In the theater, we never know where our next job is coming from. We're at everyone else's mercy and we can do our best audition. The people behind the table, if it's me and it's somebody nice, I could say that was one of the best auditions I ever saw, but you are absolutely not the right fit for this show. Uh, It doesn't matter how good you are at times. Yes. You have no control over your destiny more than, you know, about being a control freak, although there's that too, when you get right down to it. So we have always sort of had that gene and wanted to uh, feel a little more settled and a little more, a little more in control. I'd been working on uh, Broadway. Bob had also been working on Broadway. He was in Footloose as one of the grownups, not one of the kids. He, um, he was the understudy for the reverend and he had been working in academia for a while. Uh, started a college uh, theater major in uh, at University of New Haven. Ooh. Yeah. And he loved it. He loved the teaching. He didn't love the, uh, the red tape and, you know, sort of the uh, everything else that goes with academia that isn't involving the kids and, uh, you know, the inspiring part. The other part was kind of weighing on him. And anyway, so here I am doing Shakespeare and, we saw this abandoned train depot and it was for sale. And I could see in the windows, a little small town train depot, but I'm looking inside and I'm thinking, this looks like a little tiny theater. And wouldn't that be fun? Bob, do we want to buy a train station? And, you know, on this slim pretense, we gathered together a group of the actors who were up here that summer and talked to them about, you know, what could our theater company be? There's already three equity companies here. Uh, what would be our niche and uh, how would we fit in? How would we be valid uh, and relevant? We didn't end up buying that depot, but there was already a theater in town, a presenting outfit called Third Avenue Playhouse. And it was really sort of a community uh, auditorium, if you will. 
But at any rate, word got around the county that we were thinking about starting a theater company. And when the executive director of Third Avenue Playhouse announced her resignation, effective in like six weeks or you know, some very short amount of time, we were out at a, at a pub after a performance one night and somebody came in and said, Bob and James, uh, I'm setting up an appointment for you tomorrow with the board of directors. Uh, you need to meet them. And you know, if you're thinking about seriously about doing this, this might be a place for you to do it. Uh, so it was a converted, it is a converted movie house. They had the 250 seat main stage, which was the movie house. And then in the eighties, a second screen had been put in uh, in the back and it was a much smaller space. And this was the space that really appealed to us. And uh, it wasn't, it didn't look anything like a theater anymore. There were you know, no seats, uh, the screen was gone. It was a big storage room, you know, floor to ceiling with old furniture and junk and set pieces and stuff. But that was the room that piqued our interest. And we thought we could make this into a really great black box theater. Oh. Um, yeah, and with a budget of about $1.98, that's exactly what we did. Uh, this was in the autumn of uh, October of 2011. And by June of 2012, uh, we were producing theater in that back room with a brand new theater company. That's a, a pretty quick turnaround. Now, did you set up the theater company as a nonprofit or profit? Because these are the things that I'm thinking about currently. Well, these are the things that a showgirl has to think about <laughs> as well as everybody else. Um, the place was already set up as a nonprofit, you know, and I was joking because I thought, well, should we buy the depot and start fresh or should we accept this job and, you know, work under, you know, and I was like, well, they already have a fax machine and a telephone. So maybe we should just do that. Um, but, you know, they had more than a fax machine and a telephone. They had a nonprofit status and they had, um, they didn't have a huge uh, audience base, but there was some. And then a subset of that uh, audience base, uh, we thought what we did would very much appeal to them. And luckily we were right. I love, I, did, I just love this whole story because you were in the right place at the right time. Oh. You had this idea and you made it work. And I'm sure it has not been easy. What are some of the big challenges? I mean, the pandemic notwithstanding, but in the beginning, those early years, what, what were some of the big challenges for you? Oh, boy. Well, having no staff, uh, there was myself and Bob. There was a part-time uh, office worker. And uh, we brought in a friend of mine who had been an intern uh, actor at Doris Shakespeare, the two of the summers that I was there. He was an intern, so he had just graduated from college and had just taken all those technical theater classes where you need somebody to know that. And for me, of course, I'd taken a few, but it was ancient history and I really didn't, you know, I didn't speak, speak it fluently. So it was really just the three of us full time. And it was backbreaking, you know, to um, produce, design, act, stage manage, you know, all at the same time. How and, many hours a day did you work? Oh, good Lord. Now, I'm not exaggerating. That first summer, we were open seven days a week. We did our, we did our plays six nights, no, five nights a week. And on the other two days, 
we booked in concerts because we were trying to sort of keep a little bit of what the theater had been doing before we got there. Yeah. We produced a little bit of community theater, tiny little bit before we came. We stopped all community theater, but we kept the concerts because we thought people would want to see it. But I can tell you, it's very hard to do that unless you're booking in, you know, Linda Ronstadt. Sure. And around here, every park all summer long has free music. So the same acts that we would be trying to get people to pay to see, if you waited long enough, they'd appear at a free festival in the park. And uh, it's just not financially viable. And even if okay. it's people want to see, it's Wisconsin. And if you have bad weather, you just can lose your shirt. So, you know, in what business would producing plays be the financially wise choice? I but know. That, but it actually is because you have a longer run. And if you have a bad night, and we had plenty that first season, you know, you make it up the next night or over the weekend, uh, however it works out. But uh, biting, biting off more than we could chew. I feel like I aged 10 years in that first summer. It was just too much work for three people, yeah. three and a half people to, to take on. I completely understand. Yeah. After Darlene Wilson passed away, I, uh, I took over her dance studio and same thing that first couple of years aged, 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 aged. Talk about was, one of the kindest people in showbiz. Sorry right? to off on a tangent. Dar no, I know. in Spanish means to give. And that's so appropriate for Dar, Darlene, uh, how I loved her. Yeah. May she rest in peace. Yes. She was one of a kind. You have this theater now. So it's, are you going on your 10th anniversary? We are. So 2012 was the, uh, was our first season. So 2022 will be our, our 10th year. Our ninth year kind of didn't happen. Okay. Yeah. In March, about one year ago, well, everything was one year ago. So we were in rehearsal for uh, the play, A Life in the Theater. And halfway through the second week of rehearsal, it was clear that we had to shut down. And, you know, at that time they kept saying, well, it might be a month. It might be six weeks. So we videotaped the actors in rehearsal because we thought, well, we'll just pick up where we left off and let's remember the staging and where we put all the props and everything. Yeah. Well, we may still actually, we hope to reopen uh, with that same play and with those same actors, Uh, but they'll really be having to study that videotape. Uh, But, you know, now it's in a new space. So I think we're going to have to start from scratch with how we stage it and yeah. yeah, let's talk about your new space. I've been seeing some wonderful pictures. Yeah, let's so you that. Yeah, tell us about your renovation. And you said it was a movie house. So what needed to be done to make it what it's going to be? And how did you get financing for this? And it is kind of a good time to fix things and build things because you don't have to worry about production. Absolutely. So many questions. I'll try to answer them all. It's a a good time to fix things. Absolutely. It's not the best time to ask people for money, but, but ask we do and give they do. We're so lucky. Uh, We have really wonderful patrons. And now I have to go back to your first question about what were the challenges? Mm -hmm. Challenges were that there were, there was no scene shop. There was no costume shop. There was no rehearsal hall. There were no dressing rooms. There were no actor bathrooms. There was nothing. Now, these were also part of the challenges because the same rooms that we would be performing in, we would have to be rehearsing in. So you can imagine it was a constant shifting of 
scenery. I mean, it was like working in rep, but we weren't, but it had to be like that. And the sets had to be, you know, flimsy and movable by two people several times a day to get them into the room and out of the room, depending what the purpose was. So uh, even though we, you know, ostensibly had two performance spaces, it wasn't a very viable physical setup that we were working in. And the, the former movie theater space with 250 seats and laid out like a cinema, the sight lines weren't good. And the size and shape of the room sort of set you up expecting perhaps a certain kind of physical production. And in a black box, you not only can, I don't want to say get away with minimalism, you embrace minimalism and uh, the audience's imaginations are so activated and engaged that, you know, their stakes in the experience become much higher if you don't show them everything, but that they have to make some of it happen uh, in their imaginations. So early on, we, uh, other than a few educational performances and things, we really didn't use the main space for theater at all. So what we thought would be a good idea, I mean, we used that main theater mostly for rehearsals and as our scene shop, we would build sets in there. And what a waste of the, you know, the biggest real estate in our building. So we thought, how can we make this work better? Well, what we came up with was to, um, within that space, construct a much smaller and more intimate theater that would actually have a little wing space that would have a crossover in the back, all the things we didn't have in our former black box. Um, less audience. In the back, we had 84 seats. I think I mentioned there were 250 seats in the front. In our, in our Reno, we have 125 seats. So it's just a little bit bigger than before. Um, and we'll accommodate Knockwood, uh, the bigger audiences that we had been enjoying pretty steadily before the pandemic. And let's hope they all come back, right? Oh, they will. They will in droves. Absolutely. People are going to want to be entertained. And everyone has been patient and locked in. It's going to be it's going to be such a renaissance and resurgence. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens. And I'm looking forward to all of these young performers getting their chance to step on stage. It's going to be, I know it's going to be wonderful. Oh, me too. I'm glad you mentioned the young people because uh, in the season that we, um, that we didn't get to do in 2020, we had the most, and we've had some, fabulous interns and we're we are famous for walking the walk and talking the talk we hire those interns back as members of of our professional company on stage and off Um, but this um, was like even a notch above our usual spectacular interns and I was so looking forward to working with them and they were really pretty young and pretty raw Um, we have a couple of really good musical theater university programs here in Wisconsin And uh, that's where we were getting these kids. And it was heartbreaking to tell them we weren't doing this show. And then, you know, getting to know them over Facebook after, after the fact and during the fact, you know, my heart was just breaking because this is a hard enough industry to work in under the best of circumstances, as we well know. And here they're trying to get a degree in something that doesn't even exist right now. You know, they had no place to go in the summer and ply their trade. 
and they could barely get a job in a, in a restaurant. How can they afford to go back to school and keep studying this? So I, you know, I really encouraged them and said, you know, you have something important to say and please stick around long enough to say it. This awful time will end. But there are, there's so many new voices waiting to be heard and we got to be there for them. Absolutely. I had a bunch of students making their Broadway debut. There are several of my friends that are in their dancing prime. And to lose a year out of that dancing prime, oh. that's like that's like seven years in any other industry, you know? And yeah, it's like dog years. Yeah. So I just feel for everybody. And my children, I have one son who's a senior. My other two daughters are in college. But my other big kudos and big shout out to the parents of young children during this pandemic, because wow, how challenging with the virtual learning in school while you're trying to work online and what a, just what a very challenging time. Really challenging. Do you have any sort of academy there for, do you do any classes for younger than college age? We do, absolutely. Um, It's been dormant for the last couple of years, simply because uh, with our small staff, we found uh, everything was suffering, the professional productions and the educational productions, because we couldn't devote full time to it. So until we can get somebody on staff that that's at least their main position, if not their only position, you know, their only concentration is the education, we have to let that go by the wayside, but we're very committed to it. And while it was never intended to be a professional training program. It's teaching life skills through theater skills that we didn't make that up, but I love that thought. And that's exactly what it is. You know, you learn empathy, collaboration, thinking on your feet, and so many things that I'm sure will be obvious to your listeners, but theater is just a wonderful and really fun way to learn them. And it kind of gets you interested and hopefully creates audiences. But that being said, we actually have had a couple of kids who were ridiculously talented, one of whom is finishing his senior year at in the NYU theater program right now. Unfortunately, you know, about a, a year and a half of it has more been spent in Wisconsin and doing it online than it was in New York. But Isaiah, one of his dance teachers was Mamie Duncan Gibbs, who you will remember. Oh, my goodness. Chicago and, you know, the iconic small world. Yeah, absolutely. The iconic Mamie Duncan Gibbs. She's Mamie, one of the. Listening. We love you. <laughs> that's, you know, I love hearing this because we're all connected. This country is big. I love Wisconsin. I had the best. Um, I was on the Roxy tour of Chicago and we were in Madison. The, just the kindness of the people in Madison. I had to get change to buy breakfast. And this young girl, I was in a bookstore and this young girl ran to the bank for me. I just like, I was like, you, you didn't have to, <laughs> I could have walked to the bank, but you didn't have to do it. But she was just so sweet. I know that you are working like three full-time jobs. Do you still have any time or bandwidth to compose? You created this wonderful work of art called the Spitfire Grill, which I'm just like the fact that you said you wanted to come on here. I was like, he's coming on. He wrote the Spitfire Grill. Totally fangirled out on you. But do you have any other works in like brewing deep inside? Or is that something that you really just have to wait till it bubbles up? Well, that's a great question, Michelle. And thank you for fangirling out. I love it. It never gets old. <laughs> I absolutely love it. And yeah, I'm so proud of that show. And if I never did write another thing, 
I don't, it's very kind of you to call it a work of art. I don't think it's the perfect piece of theater, although I don't know what is that. But if that had to be my legacy and that said who I was and what I was about and what I did, that would be just fine with me. It said everything I wanted to say with uh, my uh, late partner, Fred Alley, may he rest in peace. And we wrote a lot of the show here in Door County where I'm living now. That's where Fred was living at that time. So it's kind of a really nice, wonderful place to be. As far as writing, after Fred passed, I kind of couldn't write for a while. And I'll tell you, I don't know if I've said this on a public broadcast before, but Sheldon Harnick himself contacted me. We had known each other a little bit. He was one of the people I met at NYU when he came and taught a few master classes. Um, and we had been sort of in touch over the years. And he was a huge fan of Spitfire Grill. And he had something that he wanted me to work on with him. And pardon my French, I couldn't get it up. I could not. I was blocked. I couldn't make anything happen. And it was devastating. And uh, if you've ever met Sheldon, um, we're talking about nice people in show business. And there really are a lot of them. But some are a cut above. And Sheldon is just one of the nicest, kindest men in this business and let me off easy. Uh, you know, we had to part ways on that, um, but we've been in touch ever since. And he's been so encouraging and it took several years. It was, I want to say 2009 or 2010 before I actually wrote a musical again. And since then, one, two, three, I think I've written three full scale musicals. And there are two that are sort of simmering on the stove right now. Spitfire Grill was my idea, but I'm usually not an idea guy. Somebody has to come to me. And I have written the words, but I don't really like to. I like to collaborate. I like to be inspired by the words that somebody else brings to me. So it's been tough. And, you know, I can always tell people, well, if it didn't work with Sheldon Harnick, it certainly is no reflection on you or your ability. I either connect with it or I don't. So we'll see what happens with these projects. But you are absolutely right. Trying to find the time to do it is tough. And you've worked on new stuff. It takes forever sometimes to get things going. I've been pretty fortunate that I've usually had a production attached right from the beginning of things that wow. I've worked on. Yeah. And, you know, almost like commissions. Some of them were literal commissions and some were like a commission because we knew a, a production was was going to happen. But barring that, it can just take so much time to get something going. And, you know, like you said, running the theater is three full-time jobs and I don't have time. I have a lot of time for that. But and and I feel like when you write something, you, you need a bit of stillness in your life. You need to really find just some time to be still and let those deep waters Whenever I write anything, and I'm not talking about music, just any kind of project I'm working on, I just need things to be a little quiet. And actually, when I go to Maine, I find that ideas come because I'm out of my normal, busy day to day. That's spot on. You do need quiet. And then for the music, I think even more so. And I'm somebody who has music running through my head sort of all day long you know, there's something in there and it's not mine. It's, it's, you know, it's something and you have to kind of clear that out and you should, you know, I drive Bob crazy, Bob, turn off that radio. I'm cogitating, <laughs> but the more that comes in, the less that can organically go out. And uh, yeah, you need to, to still yourself. It's and like you're a transmitter and the work yep. comes through you. 
it goes, it's there, but it has to find a way through you to come out. Right. And we can't have too much static interfering on the airwaves of our transmitter. Well, I am just, I'm just so amazed that some people don't leave New York. I live outside of New York, but my dream is to live in Maine. And I've always, up until this year, I've always been afraid to leave. That fear of missing out is huge. Thinking, oh, well, if I leave, then if a show comes along and I don't get it. But now I feel like this pandemic has been a giant reset and things that were important are no longer important. Yes, I still would love to have a career, but a career is anywhere you want it to be. And it's anything, it's anything you make it. Bingo. That's what I thought. And I've always kind of thought that. I loved New York and I loved the people I worked with. And yes, I mentioned some are a cut above in kindness and some are definitely a cut above in voltage and wattage and when you have cheetah rivera in your apartment for a little rehearsal and tea i mean you can't forget these things and that's not going to happen in wisconsin it really isn't but that being said i i i lived in wisconsin until 1989 how old was i i was in my mid-20s so you know i had really started working here and worked with a lot of people and i always thought our talent here was kind of great. And when I went to New York, it was a few years before I worked with Cheetah or anybody like that. But, you know, the people that you would meet and know, yeah, they were great. The difference between New York and Milwaukee to me was that there was just so much more of it in New York. But there was also more of the people who are mediocre and who, you know, I don't want to talk ill of anybody, but, you know, the people who will show up at every open call. Mm -hmm. You know, who really aren't going to get the job. Well, we had those in Milwaukee, too. Um, sure. And we also had the people who were just wonderful and you couldn't wait to think of the next thing to do that would showcase them or, you know, when is the next time the two of us will get to work together again? And this is something that I liked. I mean, it's a small community and yeah, we work with a lot of the same people in Broadway shows in and out, but when you're in a much smaller market, it's, I see it as kind of a really wonderful opportunity for growth because the the number of wonderful people that you're going to work with is a little bit smaller and it's going to happen more often. And there's a, you get to skip a few steps in rehearsal of learning to trust because you already know the person and you've already, you know, bared yourself on stage or in the rehearsal hall with them. And you just can skip that part where you, you can't quite let everything out right away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that. That's a real advantage to being in a smaller market. You're more likely to cross paths more frequently with some of the same wonderful people. Well, let's just talk about that trust factor for just a moment, because there's a new position now called an intimacy coordinator. Yeah, and I love, that? yeah, I love this. There's someone I follow called Mia Schachter, and she teaches classes in this. It's about consent. And if you have a romantic scene, there is an now nowadays on movie sets, they have someone called an intimacy coordinator to make sure that everything is done safely. And so that nobody feels like their boundaries are being crossed. It just trying to make everything more open and uh, truthful in the workplace so that you can do the acting work without, you know, maybe compromising yourself. I don't, I don't know any other way to say it, 
But can you talk about in your rehearsal process, it sounds like you have a very nurturing environment for your actors. And have you ever had to um, choreograph a scene where it's a romantic scene and the actors maybe haven't been used to that kind of work? Is there any kind of story that comes to your mind in that regard? It's a really interesting question. Myself, personally, since high school, I really haven't played a romantic part So as an actor, I haven't uh, ever had to uh, deal with it. And as a director, even not so much. One of our first couple of seasons, we did do House of Blue Leaves. And spoiler alert, plug your ears or turn the volume down if you don't know how the play ends. But the leading man has a long and very passionate kiss with his wife and murders her. And my husband, Bob, played that part. And a good friend of ours who we've both acted with on numerous occasions played the wife. And I wasn't in rehearsals for the, I didn't direct it, somebody else did. I wasn't in rehearsals for this, but when I came in, you know, for the designer run and such and saw this scene, it was devastating. And I could never watch it again. Uh, I never wanted wow. to see it again after that. The The kiss was very realistic, very passionate and long. And, you know, and what followed was, was brutal. Uh, I know that they worked on it very hard and that they had complete trust in one another, but it was difficult for me to even watch. And Michelle, I got to tell you to the, and this isn't really answering your question, but we haven't had an intimacy coordinator, but to this day, people come to the theater and, will say to Bob out of the blue, I can't believe you did that to Amy, (laughs) that play. So I wasn't the only one who was really affected by it. And I think it's magnified because of the intimacy of our theater space. You know, there were only six rows in that theater in the back. And that back row was closer to the stage than some front rows are on Broadway. Once you put the pit and an apron in, it's right up there. So you're really... um, in it and it's tough. I'm trying to think of incidents where we would need an intimacy coordinator, but we haven't really. I'm sure it will come up in the future, possibly in the very near future, but the only outside help we've really had has been fight choreographers. Oh, I love fight choreographers. And I worked with a great one in Maine. I just did West Side Story a couple of years ago. Mark Bedell, we had this great guy do all the fighting and I learned so much. And I also want to take some of these intimacy coordinator classes because they are online at the moment. So, yeah. So I'll, um, after we get off this call, I will send you the information if you ever want to check it out. It's just interesting. It's a new development in our theater, which I feel is a long time coming after you hear some of these stories about certain ways people on film sets were kind of tricked into doing things or, you know, the director would basically force people to do certain things. I don't know. But I think that in our society today, our theater is and our filming is a reflection of the climate and we're often a lens to show people what could be but I I think things are changing for more inclusion and more just more tolerance and especially in our business the director is basically the boss right but it doesn't mean that there has to be a like a real dictatorship you know what I'm saying collaboration as you said is really important yes well especially in our situation, totally off the topic with intimacy, but we started out with 
three and a half weeks of rehearsal, which is pretty standard for regional theaters. But for some reason, the majority of shows that we were doing felt like they were ready before then and that, you know, we were fine tuning a little too much. I like to call it, when can you invite the audience in? When are you ready to invite other people in? And so we cut a week off. We have very short rehearsal periods, two and a half weeks, you know, two weeks before going into tech and the half week of tech and then we open. And it's really exciting. Uh, people are ready to bring somebody else in. And it's not the same show you're going to see three weeks into the run, but theater is never done. It's done as done as it's going to be on opening night. And then six weeks later, when the show closes, it's at a different place, but they're both valid and you're really ready to bring other people in. That's how you keep, keep it alive and keep it growing when you bring the audience in. And then as far as the collaborative part of that, you know, we do do musicals. I usually direct and and choreograph them. And how how much of a routine can you teach? One, when you don't have a rehearsal hall and you don't have mirrors. And two, how, you know, how much fine tuning on it can you do? Clean up work with such a short rehearsal period because you also have to do the acting and singing scenes too. So, you know, there's usually a couple numbers. There's usually a tap number. But what I like to do is set up the, oh, and I send out the tap number in advance. You know, I have somebody film me on their little iPhone. Uh, doing Very smart. And I send out the steps and, you know, like people want to come in knowing the music. They also come in knowing the the steps, if not how it all fits together in the routine. And then, you know, the first couple of days, I'll do some numbers and set up sort of what the vocabulary of the show is and how, how that works. But then if somebody has a solo number and they're a good mover, why should I be telling them exactly what to do? If they have a sense of how this show moves in this world, how, how does their body move to the music? So I think during a certain point in rehearsals early, I become more of an editor than a director or a choreographer because it is a collaboration and the actors bring so much. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you when to bevel and, <laughs> and shimmy. You will know when to do it. If, <laughs> you know, if that's part of the routine. You'll know when to do it. Oh, wow. And we sort of figure it out together. And I like that because I, a dancer, I am not, uh, I can't tap, but you know, I was like a good chorus tapper. Mm -hmm. and that's a totally different thing than being a dancer. I, I took all the classes, but I never had an extension or, you know, anything. But I have some sense of the vocabulary and I'm a musician, so I have really good rhythm, you know, and I was athletic for most of my life. So I was in good shape and had stamina. But, you know, I just I was never a dancer dancer. But that doesn't mean you can't envision and help people do wonderful things. You totally can. Absolutely. And I don't know if you've worked with any Broadway choreographers who never got out of the chair. Oh, yes. <laughs> I did. I yes, did. yes, yes, I have. And, you know, I got to say, I know why they didn't get out of the chair, because there comes a point where sometimes you just can't get out of that chair. <laughs> <laughs> but this pandemic, I, um, I was having some lower back and hip problems and this pandemic, I have worked out consistently and I no longer feel pain. So I'm super grateful to my friend Kathleen because, you know, getting older, we have to make sure that this machine called our body is in functioning order. And I honestly feel better than I have in years. So I'm Good super excited. Yeah, uh, it was it was not easy. I cried for the first four weeks of her classes, but I made it over that hump. And it's nice to go to sleep at night without 
seven pillows under your leg. And oh, huh. well, you're doing something right then, Michelle. And that's good. And you're so right about the shelf life of a dancer being so short. But I love talking to dancers who are all about passing it on. And if that doesn't become what you're about, I I'd, I'd feel like a lot of dancers get lost if they don't find that place. But, you know, Greg Butler is in Korea right now. I um, love that. Passing it on to them and showing them how it's done. And Anne it looks Rankin like a wonderful. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm sad really, about in ranking. Oh, man. Awful, awful and too soon. And, you know, but I, I admired her for so long and I got to work with her and I will be forever grateful for that. And yeah, the passing it on is it's very important because I just think of all the people who gave me so much Biork and Donna McKechnie. And now it's my turn to give out to the young dancers. And I see the spark. There's this, there's this little girl that I teach. She's uh, maybe 13 and she started coming to, I teach a musical theater class and she started coming and she had so much energy and she would dance so big. And the other, she was new to the school too. And the other kids would kind of side eye. But I just, one day she fell in class. We were going across the floor and she fell and um, she got up and I said, you know what? I am so proud of you. And I said to the other kids, I said, she gave so much energy that she fell and I will take that any day over the most perfect dancer who doesn't try, you know, and she's grown so much because she, she tries so hard, but she's getting better. And it's just making me so happy because the other kids see how much I like this kid and they have, it was almost at the edge of bullying, but now, now they don't bully her because I like, I took her under my wing and I'm like, you're awesome. You're amazing. That girl's got the right idea. I love passing on lessons I learned like that specifically from from people in my time in New York. One of them was Priscilla Lopez was auditioning for a show and they were so specific about what they wanted. And so she came in, I was playing the auditions. uh, That's how I, I was, you know, the fly on the wall when this happened. But she came in, it was some Cole Porter thing. I don't remember what, but she had this arrangement and, you know, it was a big thing and it you know it was it was huge and it was out there and it was great and it was totally not what they were looking for and they told her that right after she finished singing it and she said well I was taught that strong and wrong is better than weak and meek any day and I've never forgotten that and you know good for that girl not falling over but you know going for it to the point that she might if you're not going to put it out there why bother I exactly. <laughs> I am so grateful you spent this time with me today. And um, I am at your disposal. If you need anything for any reason, just call me up. Because if you need help with any choreography or teaching, I'm your showgirl. And I'm in I'm your debt your- today. I'm at your disposal to tell you any th- pearls of wisdom or don't let this happen to use that I can about starting a theater. I really hope you do it, Michelle. I know I wrote to you that it's not for the faint of heart. So that means it's probably a pretty good fit for you. And I think you should, I think you should pursue it. I want to start it small and build it. Well, listen to you. You got the right idea. And I think that's the way to do it. That's absolutely the way to do it. You haven't been yeah. spoiled by the broad way. I never was either. The best advice I can give is don't spend money that you don't have. And it sounds like ex- that's exactly the lines you are thinking along because otherwise your little company is going to go under before it even gets started. I know. And, and the money thing is always the issue, but 
you know, somehow I think it'll, it'll work out, but I, I definitely need to think about the money issue too, because money is going to be tight for people for the next few years. As we get back on our feet there, I feel like what we do is a necessity but unfortunately, when people, when budgets are tight, entertainment is something that gets cut out of people's budgets. And I understand yeah. that. And then they wonder why they feel so miserable. That's why. <laughs> yeah. They need some showbiz in mm-hmm. their life. Well, yep. thank you for coming on. I so appreciate your time. I know how busy you are. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a, a treat, a trip down memory lane and, and just a joy for today. This was great. The Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast has original music composed by Joshua Holloway. Find him on YouTube, Joshua Holloway Music. This podcast is written by Michelle Bruckner and edited by Michelle Bruckner and Joshua Holloway. Find me on Instagram, Showgirl Tip of Day. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week with a new episode. Oh,